Hello everyone and welcome to episode 100 of the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. So to celebrate, we want to thank our guests and you, our beautiful audience. Each of you are seeking to make brain health everyone's business. We've put together a small collection of the best minds in the brain health business, some of our favorite episodes, and snippets from the guests that call themselves accidental futurists. The Thriving Minds podcast is being listened to in 99 countries and now in 2,251 cities around the world. The program is being produced in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, and is now across all the cities in Australia, cities in Canada, France, Norway, Ireland, United States, Serbia, Israel, the Balearic Islands in Mallorca, Spain, just to name a few of them. You would have to agree that the ability to provide free access to information that was once in the hand of a few experts is one of the greatest benefits of technology and the platforms available to each of us. It's, we've achieved unparalleled opportunities to offer people information, education and tools like never before. It's such an exciting time, but of course, everything can be used for good or for evil. We hope to do our best to bring you the latest advances in neuroscience from experts and from you, the audience, that are applying these tools in your daily life to serve to help you to thrive. There are four main themes that have arisen by looking at all the different downloads and the choices that are people making in their listening. And after looking at all the data, because as you know, I'm a neuroscientist and can't help wondering what people want to hear and what they're interested in. And there are four themes that really have arisen. They are examining the brain health revolution. What are the things that I can tap into to gain some of the secrets of thriving health, resilience and grit that are based in neuroscience? And in episode 100 today, we're going to focus on what these people call themselves as accidental futurists. But I like to think of them as just where we are right now in history, where we can help other people not have to stumble into brain health and fitness, but to really access this information. The second theme is, and probably some of the most watched episodes are all about food and mood and its effect on brain health. There's an overwhelming interest in how sugar and processed food and stress affect the brain and what we can do about it. And the third theme is all around the neuroscience of learning for educators, for teachers, for parents, and for schools. And how do we improve um, ability for both the teachers and the students to learn? The fourth theme is all about p the people themselves, individual stories of brain health and fitness, from using laughter to overcome cancer, to learning three languages at the age of 21 in Scandinavia to promote Prada as well. One of the most downloaded episodes was how to develop an entrepreneurial mindset at any age. We look forward to sharing all of these snippets and compilations with you over the next number of episodes. But today's episode, episode 100, is dedicated to the brain health revolution. It's excerpts from taken from the best brains in the business that have set brain health and fitness revolution in motion. And it's little ways that you can think about how you can join in this revolution. 
by understanding the advances in neuroscience, brain imaging and the digital platforms that are allowing us to bring this to you on a daily basis. So please enjoy and thank you for listening. We're really, really grateful and you're making a big difference in us being able to promote brain health and fitness so that everyone deserves to be happy, healthy, strong and have a thriving mind. Thank you. Sandra Chapman, or Sandy as she's well known around the world, she's a cognitive neuroscientist. She's the founder and chief director of the Centre for Brain Health. She's the D. Wiley Distinguished Professor in Brain Health and Professor in the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at the University of Texas, Dallas. And that's the shortest version I could come up with. She is incredibly famous. Thank you so much for giving us your time today, Sandy. Would you like to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you, Selena, for inviting me to be on your show and to thank you for all the work that you do and spreading the word globally. I can hardly wait to do it together. Just imagine what we could do. Um, but I um, you know, I started off my career as a speech language pathologist, but I was changed very early when I was practicing. And I tell this story because a lot of people wonder, how did you ever get into brain health? And it was really my, the patients that I saw in the schools that made me realize what we had been trained in school was really not accurate. It was wrong. So I, you know, I am a, I, I sometimes say that I am a, a accidental futurist, uh, that I accidentally began to realize that what we're learning from neuroscience and practice is really wrong. And so I kind of happened, happened on, on it, uh, you know, and so after being a speech pathologist, I went on to get my PhD in cognitive neuroscientist, and even then, you know, I've been doing this for more than three decades. Everything I learned has been reversed. So that's just a quick introduction of accidentally getting uh, individuals to show me that what I was learning in the books was really inaccurate. And I just wanted to set out to see what could be done to make the brain stronger, more fit. So I, I'm reading in your background history, which is incredible, uh, you talk about working with autistic children and then noticing that they were gifted and this led you to change your mind about the brain. Yes. Selena, it's, I, I mean, I, I wish I could find Brian today because he really changed the course of my whole life. The Brian was an 11 year old autistic child. I actually started the first classroom uh, in the Dallas Independent School District more than 40 years ago. And uh, the kids, all the, there were six of them and they were all labeled severely mentally impaired without the ability to even learn or change. And uh, within the first week when I started working with them, Brian, I could see was watching me, you know, just like a Hawkeye. And I thought he couldn't understand verbally what I said and didn't have any uh, verbal language back and he just rocked and you know you know that 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 banged his head and I thought he's watching me so I knew sign language and I went through sign language and he learned it after one trial 
Wow. And I went, oh my goodness. Do you know how many trials it took me? And this wizard kid that's been labeled severely mentally impaired learned it after one trial. And then I had a broken tape recorder. And I love to tell this story because in the old days, you didn't just pull out your phone. <laughs> you had tape recorders that had to be repaired. No one could fix it. It was broken. And one day he was watching me push buttons like crazy. And he goes, rawr, rawr. and he takes my tape recorder from me, takes it apart down to the screws and literally in 40 minutes puts it back together and it works for the first time. And that's why I say I'm an accidental futurist because Brian made me realize that our tests are so outdated and they're, they were never meant to test the upward potential of the human mind. Absolutely. Uh, I, I keep it, keep our mind for the rest of our life because we know that we're living longer, but we really aren't keeping the vitality of our mind stronger. And I think people miss that. It's been the loneliness, the fear, the loss of jobs, the loss of loved ones, uh, the depression, the stress, the anxiety, sleep disorders is higher than ever before. So I think not a single person has been impacted. So I, it's interesting. People are much more willing now to say, kind of say, yeah, let's build, let's build more brain health. Let's see how much better my need to show to people. Nothing is more important to each, every individual, but to really all of our cities, our communities, our countries to thrive than brain health. Without brain health, as you know, in my signature, I say without brain health, we don't have health because it's true. Um, when it, I just want to close with one thing that I think our world needs more of. And it's also the greatest brain activity anybody can do are acts of compassion. It's the most complex thing. And it's also the most powerful thing to problem solve. It changes your neuropharmacy and it changes the person you showed compassion to. It's the most brain healthy thing you can do is show acts of compassion. So I would also tell people to find something where you show acts of compassion as you're being a rhino, charging hard after your goal with relentless tenacity to make a difference. Joined by Dr. Julie Frattentoni, who's a cognitive neuroscientist and very exciting, excitingly, she's coming all the way to us from, uh, from Dallas in Texas. She is the head of operations for the Brain Health Project. It's a 10-year longitudinal research study seeking to define, measure, and improve brain health and performance across our lifespan. What an amazing project, and how aligned is that with our message of making brain health become everyone's business? Welcome, Julie, and thank you so much for your time today. Hello, happy to be here. I wanted to understand how are things working so we can eventually um, understand how to provide better therapy when they're not working. But then uh, along the way, I did my clinical fellowship at the Center for Brain Health um, with Dr. Chapman's lab and team. And, um, and that when I really fell in love with this idea of high performance and really what is, how do you push brain potential and, or identify it or unlock it, or what does that even mean? Um, and that through cognitive training that that's possible. And so that was kind of really opened my eyes to this world of seeing the brain through a lens of potential rather than one of injury and disease, as I did as a, you know, a speech therapist where you only work with disordered populations. Um, 
And so that was really neat and kind of opened my eyes to that. And the other really big main focus is the Brain Health Project, as you mentioned in the introduction. And so, um, you know, that's kind of, I guess, how I landed where, where I am today. And I know we'll get to dig into more details about the project. So let's talk a little bit about how, how is brain health received by the general public um, since you've entered this project? What do you, what's your feeling about that? I think the biggest thing we're up against is it's kind of a new category of health. I think for so long, the brain was um, siloed it really into just mental health, which your brain does, you know, mental health is a very important piece of brain health, but it's not the whole thing. And so there's so many other components that are really critical to understanding the brain holistically. So I think that's one is that people don't know a, what it is. It's kind of this new category and then, or B they're, they're not worried about it. It's kind of like yeah. something you can't see. It's sort of a black box. And so I think when people, you know, especially younger, they'll be like, well, I don't need that. Or I'll, I'll with the brain health project. The whole point of the project is to scale that. So before this training was always delivered in person within groups. And so you needed to be in Dallas or able to travel there and afford that. And so the whole purpose of this is how do we get this to be, scalable? How can we get this into the hands of everyone and just um, make it accessible? So that is the point of the project is, you know, giving people their own dashboard, their own ability to not only um, participate in the training, but to actually track and measure their progress through an, a set of assessments that we call the Brain Health Index, um, getting that score and then being able to, you know, engage in training, which is self-paced over time. Um, we also have a coaching element to that where you can have every three months, a, a 30 minute virtual call with one of our brain health coaches. And the purpose of that is really to help you understand your index and then um, really see how you can apply the training to your life. Because again, the training doesn't do you any good to just sit and listen to it or watch it or go through it. Um, but really where the brain change happens is when you're actually using it in your daily life. And, um, and so that's the kind of the, the coaches to help you see ways to do that. So let's talk about the brain health index because that's wonderful. Um, let's talk about the components for people listening. They're going, well, one, wonder what my brain health index is. Um, obviously, you've got to do some exercises and you get a number, but do you want to talk about the components that make up a healthy brain in terms of what you at the Center for Brain Health in Dallas consider that to be, Absolutely. what those components are? So you may have spoken to Sandy about this, but what we're seeing is these new factors emerging. So we had kind of originally categorized things in the way it is live on the dashboard now is cognitive, um, social interactions, well-being, and daily life. And then you've got kind of the center as the neural components. Um, and what we've seen with our data so far, um, and I, I should mention, we so we kicked off the study, the original pilot in 2020, right as the pandemic hit, um, conducted that, published that paper last year in 2021, and then it's been ongoing enrollment. And so we have over... Um, over 11,000, close to 12,000 consented participants to part that are enrolled in the study um, This today. is a 10-year study, remember? This is a 10-year study, yes. And so um, we're kind of just getting started. But as we have, you know, looked um, kind of just in the last two years at the data that we've gotten, we've seen things start to reorganize. And so this is really kind of interesting and different. I think we intuitively would put things in certain buckets um, the way we had grouped them. But what we're seeing now is that they've kind of organized into three we're calling factors. And so we've called these factors clarity, 
connectedness, which means connectedness both to people and to your purpose, and then emotional balance. And so I, you know, our big questions for this study and this project are to define, to measure, and to improve or maintain brain health across the lifespan. So when you think about um, defining it, there's such a wide range of healthy, but everyone's brain's different, everyone uses it differently. And so there's a wide range there. Um, measuring it, that comes into play with the index. ...of the brain difference. Yeah. So I'm really so grateful that you've really, in my view, this is the way most of the studies are going to have to be done in the future. Anyway, if we want to really understand it. I really appreciate you saying that because I think sometimes a lot of the time the reaction from the scientific community is like, oh, it's not, you know, this caliber of research if it's not a randomized controlled trial. And I think, um, yeah, exactly to your point that it's, it's so important to understand the the great individual variability and um and so yeah so this is more of a a, a data mining project yeah. than anything well i um, think we need to talk about this because in your linkedin post you mentioned tom insel who retired from the nimh the national institutes of mental health he ran that for a long time he retired in 2015 and in this uh, quote that you put out there, I think this lends itself to this quote, what we're discussing right now. And this is such an important discussion. He says that he spent $20 billion um, across that institute. He moved the institute, which I think was really important, into neuroscience and genetics and genomics and spent a lot of money on developing those technologies because that was absent from the mental health space for a really long time. So that was really necessary. But then he finishes by saying that um, when I look back on my time, so this is Tom Insel talking, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, hospitalizations, improving recovery for tens of millions of people who have mental illness. So psychiatry and psychology and other places have to be more honest about its limitations and not have biology at the primary cause and recognize the social dimension of mental illness. And it needs to stop chasing ma magic bullets. You know, so you can change what you're talking about here is by fundamentally understanding how the brain works, you can change the future. Yes. Not just for yourself, but for your siblings and offspring as well. Yeah, absolutely. there, welcome to Extra Healthy-ish, the big sister podcast to Healthy-ish. This podcast is from Body and Soul and we've designed it to give you that little bit extra, well, in your day for your mind, body and soul. But today we're going to give you a little bit extra for that brain of yours. Yes, we want to give it an extra boost. I am your host, Felicity Harley, and my guest is Professor Selena Bartlett. Now, she's a neuroscientist and as I said, a professor in clinical sciences at the Queensland University of Technology. She's also an author, a podcaster, and she happens to write for us in uh, Body and Soul Print. Today, she joins us to discuss healthy brain habits. And I also wanted to ask her about the impact of food on your brain. Selena, thank you so much for coming on Extra Healthyish. Now, I ask this question for everyone who comes on the podcast. How do you stay extra healthyish in your life? So, uh, I, there's a number of things, but I would say, and this is going to sound really strange, is my morning routine. Oh, no. Win the morning, win the day. <laughs> so um, what I mean by that is as soon as I open my eyes, I, I, I look out the window 
and I think of three things I'm grateful for before I touch my phone or anything. And and now I just got married um, recently. Oh, and congratulations. We also say so, thank you. We also say something really nice to each other like that. Now, this is not about gratefulness or um, it is about gratefulness, but what it's about also is no humans and our brain is mainly visual. And there's this great evidence demonstrating when you have a, when you go outside and you look wide at the wide world, that's called panoramic vision. And they've shown that it suppresses your autonomic nervous system. So that gives you calmness. From the Whereas get-go. if you get straight to your phone and narrow your vision down, it's more stressful to the body immediately. So you can see straight away that instead of um, when I get up, then maybe I might have a cup of coffee, but I will put on my exercise clothes as the first set of clothes that I will put on. And I've been doing that now for a number of years, at least six years. And I'm older than many people in your audience. And I only started triathlons at 47. Oh, amazing. Um, Yes, my first one. And was then. And so I just want to let you know that I have been down the pathway of being very unhealthy, very unhappy. I've been through all of the traumas that most people have probably been through, but not at the same level because it's, you know, I'm very born very lucky. But stress is the thing that drives most of our problems and it's the way it's wiring the brain. And so often in many times we focus on how we look, what we're eating, how much we're exercising, but it really starts with starting to train your brain for how to handle stress in a different way. And so you, so I talk so about you this set the, the morning up. So then, yes. you know, for the stresses that come during the day, yes, you're so much better at, you know, I suppose your resilience is there, isn't it? Because you've yeah, come from a calm place. Well, it's also brain training. So understand the brain's physical. And so we can become the boss of our brain but we tend to operate as if we don't have any control over it in some way. And it's probably the most important organ we have. And so a lot of the work I do now, as you probably might be aware, is that is helping people understand this at a brain level, not at a superficial level. So, um, so the thing that happens by doing this is yes, all those things you just mentioned, but you're actually physically, physically training the brain like a muscle. So when you go to the gym and you do five reps and you're toning your arm, you're getting nice biceps, you can see it, can't you? But you can't see your brain getting stronger. <laughs> but you it can't is. see it. And so we always focus on its weaknesses and we don't talk about the brain in a beautiful, healthy way, but the brain is very plastic, very strong. Humans are incredibly strong people. Look what they do in crisis. They get up, they pick up, they help each other, they clean up. You know, it's amazing to watch. And we always, always reporting on the issues, but we're not reporting on people's resilience and their strength. And that's a brain thing. And the second thing, when you start your morning like this, by the afternoon, when you normally really, because you can't get rid of other people's stresses or your own stresses. If you're a young parent, especially with COVID and everything else, and you've got money and you've got mortgages. It goes on and on and on. You can't get rid of all of those, but you can manage how it comes in to affect your brain. And so these small, simple steps, and you do it every day, just help to build some capacity to stop your brain from overreacting to small things. And so by the afternoon, because we're talking about sugar, is that's when I used to go to the vending machine at work, I'd be going into a terrible meeting because I was at UCSF, I was running a big lab and had a lot of stresses outside young kids under four. 
and I would hit the vending machine. I'd go to, you know, down at 2J or whatever it was with my favorite snack. I had no idea that was going really high energy into my body and staying there for the rest of for years. I had no idea. Um, and it was only after I learned about sugar addiction and how I was handling my stress with sugar that everything changed for me. So those simple awareness things are really important. So this is what I do daily. I run every day. I know that people don't say to do that, but I think it's not just, you don't, if you don't like running, that's fine. You can stretch. There's so many examples Let's like go for a walk. blue zones where people are just moving. Absolutely. Just move. You've got to move your body a lot, a lot, 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 like way more than you think. And across your whole lifespan, people stop moving and they don't mean to. It's just dopamine goes down. Like you can think of Netflix when you just sit there and dopamine goes down, you end up binge watching <laughs> for three hours. Right. So moving is hard because it, our body doesn't want to. So these simple things, I, I would say play, laughter, humor, staying connected, um, prioritizing relationships over money, status and power. So the one thing that I've noticed over my lifespan now that I'm today, next week, my birthday, I'll be 57. Happy birthday. The thing I've noticed the most is that as you put all your attention to money, power and status, you lose friendships. You gain a lot of quantity of friendships, but you might lose the quality of friendships. And the number one thing they've shown in the Harvard Grant study following men for 80 years and in the Blue Zones and Okinawa and all of these places, it's the quality of the connections and it, and it stimulates serotonin, oxytocin, and all these important hormones that we need as social animals to, to thrive and survive. And as I said at my daughter's 21st speech on Saturday night, we need a village to raise our children. Mm, we absolutely do. And, and, that's, and, and that's critically important. You can keep focusing on yourself and what you eat and how much you exercise, and you can look fabulous. But you, if you're alone, the brain knows it. So I would... Think about what I like to say to people is I think about my epitaph, like what's what's it going to be at the end of my life? What's it going to say? And, yeah. and I know from listening to lots of podcasts, people jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, all of these different you know, people in hospice care, the only thing that matters at the end when you're going is the quality of your relationships. People that you around you. Anyone, and, that you that, and you're asking for forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely. People around you. And, it, and it's the quality of them. It's not the quantity. Williams, who is the professor of cognitive neuroscience at Macquarie University, and he's been studying the brain for 20 years, and he's got extensive experience at both MIT and back in Australia, winning many awards and really prestigious fellowships, which you can read about in links to the podcast. So we're really lucky because he's just about to, or in the middle of writing a book and releasing a new book all about social connection. And that's kind of been his research area. And he's going to tell us a lot about that today. So thank you, Mark, for joining us. And do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Selena. Um, yeah, so I, I am a cognitive neuroscientist. I actually research in the area on social connection um, and how we can connect better and how a lot of the apps and social media and so on are, are using our social connection to actually draw us away from each other. Um, and make a lot of money from our attention, uh, which is causing issues in society as well. So it's it's got a lot of positive aspects to it, but also a few warnings and how to get around those issues. And what was interesting is that when I was at MIT, 
um, I was studying social cognition, but I was no, also can, there can when. Just, both... uh, sorry to interrupt. Can you tell the audience what you mean by social cognition? Because some people, because ah. they they are um, fundamental terms for us, but I think that it's really great to break it right down so people have a really great understanding because this is really important isn't it in terms of our species yeah absolutely so social cognition is our ability to, to um uh, to be be social with each other so recognizing other people's emotions recognizing their intentions recognizing who they are to begin with because it's really important um, and then understanding both my own emotions how i'm feeling and how they're feeling and then being able to interact with each other which is really fundamental again to us as human beings because we are the most connected species on on the planet right we're more connected than any other species there is there's no other species that actually co cooperates or is social across groups so most species have groups that they they live within, but they don't do that across groups and they don't collaborate across. You, you know, I'm, I'm working on a laptop now. <laughs> Components of that laptop have come from all over the world, um, which is completely unique idea in the animal kingdom for, for people to collaborate across groups like that. Um, and so to do that, we've actually got to be able to get along and we do that by, actual, by social cognition, by understanding what the other person's thinking and what we're thinking and then being able to collaborate with each other, which is vital for us as humans. Now attention back, because the big problem is we're not as productive now as we used to be because of the fact that we're constantly being uh, cued by these things. We're constantly checking our phones. We're constantly checking emails. We're constantly checking all these other things. And it's, it is literally causing depression and anxiety and stress, um, but it's also killing our productivity. Um, yeah, so, so we really need to do better. Get them to read for, depending on the age of the kid, between half an hour and an hour every day. Because it doesn't matter what area you're going to, reading is so important for us as human beings. But reading is a really, really new ability that we don't have. It's not automatic. As a parents listening or educators listening, what would be your top three things that you've learned that could really make a difference to help some people? Yeah. Um, Number one is devices in schools. Australia is number one in the world for devices in schools, a number of devices in schools, how long kids stay on devices each day. And we are slipping when it comes to learning. Like our learning results are disgusting compared to most countries, most OECD countries, right? We've, we've been slipping on science, maths and literature for, for, for almost a decade now. So we need to rethink that. Ban on... Phones during the day at schools. I, I see the schools I work with, once we actually get the phones locked up in the lockers, the kids start actually playing at lunchtime. They start socialising with each other. They start spending time out in nature and doing things together rather than being on devices. And that, I think, is critical. I, you know, rethinking the way we're using devices in schools and banning the mobile phones is, is really critical. The other thing is um, spending time with people is the best drug we have for depression and anxiety and uh, suicide prevention and so on. There isn't a drug that we can take that is as good as actually socialising, spending time with people. So actually organising to have time with people, both us as adults, where you sit down with someone face-to-face -face and have a chat over coffee without the device there, um, and kids doing the same thing, just having time together without devices there. As soon as you put a device there, 
conversation actually gets much shallower. So there's a lot of research now showing our conversations are more shallow when there's a device somewhere nearby. So put your device away and have a real conversation with someone. It's better for your brain than anything else you can do. It staves off Alzheimer's, it staves off other degenerative diseases. Um, it results in better um, mental health in relation to depression, anxiety, and stress, and so on. So spending time together is so important. It is difficult because of that issue that we we're talking about before. The more time you spend away from people, the more difficult it is to then go and chat to someone because we haven't been doing it and we have our brains are use it or lose it. We haven't been using it for the last two years. And so a lot of those mechanisms aren't working as well as they should be. But that's something we need to rectify, right? You, if, you, if, you, for some, if you sprain your ankle and you can't do exercise for three months, four months, it's hard to then get out there and do exercise, but you know you've got to do it. Otherwise, you get big and fat and you end up with other diseases that you don't want. So you force yourself to do it. It's the same with socialising. You haven't done it for a while. Yes, it's going to be anxiety provoking, but you've got to actually do it. Otherwise, it's just going to atrophy more and you're going to have more and more issues and it's going to be harder every day you don't do it. So we need to do it. And kids need to do it. Kids need to play. Kids need to actually get out there and play and spend time with each other. The papers are overwhelming now um, regarding all of the negative impacts of just screen time on teenagers and on kids. Um, so, you know, we really need to think about that. Um, we know that the earlier a child has a device or the more time they spend on a device, the more likely they are to be diagnosed with ADHD um, or autism. So, you know, that to me says everything. Yeah, yeah, paradigm shifts take forever to actually be established. Yeah. Plus the textbooks take forever. To they take even more right. time now. Yeah, yeah, because you can't read, yeah, they don't rewrite textbooks every year. They take 10, 15, 20 years before you rewrite a textbook yeah. or a new textbook comes out yeah. um, on a particular topic. Um, and kids need to be getting out in nature and actually experiencing nature. Yeah. Right? Today I'm joined by Dr. Susan Yagi. She's a professor in education and cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. And we're really lucky today because she's going to share with us her latest citizen science project, which I hope you all would like to try. And uh, we're going to be talking a lot about brain training today and working memory and then how that helps you become more resilient and trying to introduce some of that. So thank you, Suzanne, for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Selena. Uh, I'm, as Selena said, I'm a professor at UC Irvine where I'm directing the Working Memory and Plasticity Lab. And uh, in my lab, we study how people learn. And uh, within that space, I'm particularly interested to understand how and why people learn differently. And there we look at the role of uh, people's environments, their education and intellectual engagement and how that shapes uh, learning and brain development. And most importantly, we focus on what we can do to help people learn better and reach their potential. And to do this, my team and I have been creating and testing apps and games to assess and promote learning across the lifespan, all the way from little kids to older adults. Yes, and uh, so I came ac across your work um, outside publications and science through the Scientific American article 
where there's been a lot of controversy in the field about whether it's worthwhile um, doing brain training exercises. And there've been some people saying that it's that they're getting benefits and there's other people saying that that they're really good at the games but then it doesn't transfer to other aspects of their life and so you're in this article you've started a whole citizen science project aimed at trying to address some of this controversy or through different between by doing large studies and you're trying to recruit 30,000 people so let's talk a little bit about how you came to do this. And I think this is the most valuable piece I've seen happening uh, for brain training. Yeah, thank you. So uh, yes, indeed. So our citizen science project uh, is funded by the National Institute of uh, Mental Health in the US and really has the key goal to address these longstanding controversies in, in the field of brain training, as you just said. Um, and, and indeed, there have been long-standing discussions and, and argument around the challenges and um, benefits of using brain training apps to improve possibly uh, cognitive skills. Um, and, and a lot of people have argued, you, you should stop doing that, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money. Um, but, but there's still an increasing number of studies that uh, demonstrate that certain brain training exercises can indeed be beneficial uh, in improving a variety of cognitive skills from uh, ranging from basic attention skills to, to even math skills or reading comprehension skills. Um, but on the other hand, there's also a substantial number of studies that do not find any effects. Uh, and the question is really, how do we reconcile these uh, differences and these different findings? And I've been doing work in that domain since I was a grad student. So it, it's coming up to 20 years or something too. Uh, and for about a decade now, we have been arguing that we're really asking the wrong questions in, in, in that we're simply asking whether or not brain training works. Um, but um, that there's really no one size fits all with brain training, but rather there are individual differences. So differences between people that we yet have to understand that impact whether and how certain brain training interventions are beneficial uh, or not. Um, specifically, we often see that while our intervention clearly works for some, others don't seem to be res uh, responding well, uh, or they're not really engaged, which of course leads to them not really getting any benefits. So in order to get a better handle at, um, to understand what interventions work best and for whom, we have embarked on this big citizen science project in which we are enrolling 30,000 people, uh, which is uh, a large scale study. So typically uh, the field has, doing, uh, has been doing um, work with small scale studies with 30, 40 people. So really trying to go beyond that and uh, having various, um, all these people under testing and training at home uh, with variants of interventions and variants of assessments with the hopes that the results will allow us to come up with interventions um, that first of all, it, it lets us understand who is, is going to benefit and in, in what aspects of the interventions. And then um, that would allow us to come up with interventions that can be targeted to certain individuals and therefore maximize the benefits for all, or at least for most. Burnout exactly. for yes, COVID. Exactly. Um, I'd like to just focus one second there, if you don't mind, on COVID, because what I noticed when I got COVID um, this year 
it's a few months mm-hmm. now, but it really did affect some of my working memory. I could tell. Right. So mm-hmm. that meant yes. that I could start mm-hmm. training it back. I, I'm still working on it, but I, it really did affect my working memory. I could feel it and see it, notice it, mm-hmm. sample. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm very sorry to hear that. And and many people, as you just described, have have um, reported these effects of long COVID. So brain fog is is often kind of expressed in poor working memory skills as well, because it, it's really becoming hard to focus and and keep information, the relevant information, uh, in mind. And maybe um, you've experienced right. It, it's getting hard to hold a conversation and and kind of remembering what what the person just said uh, earlier as well and and that's really what what working memory is is very critical for and and it, it's at the front and center of uh anything cognitive uh, that we do so so working memory helps you with with a lot of different uh, cognitive functions and that's why it's so important to have means that um help you foster and maintain um these working memory skills by for example, by cognitive training, um, exactly. which is the focus of my, my work that I do. Yes. So, so that's a nice next point. And this is the point that I find is missing a lot, um, is that just like you go to the gym to tone your arms, this part mm-hmm. of the brain can be trained too, like a muscle. And that's what you mean by brain training for people that right. aren't aware. So this is a physical part of the brain and everyone's architecture is quite different as well. Mm -hmm. And some people have excellent working memory and some people have poor working memory for lots of varieties of reasons, but there's no Mm -hmm. reason that you can find right now, except for maybe some genetics and some architectural pieces that are missing that you can't move your current working memory to a a better level. That's what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think that the, the public and scientists, they really increasingly uh, recognize that our brains and our working memory in particular are malleable and that there's evidence for brain plasticity and and your possibility to increase working memory even at very old age, as you said. So even though that some people clearly do have um, challenges and deficits in working memory, there are ways you can train and practice your working memory skills and that hopefully that will help them to also get better in other skills that rely on this uh, functioning of of the working memory um, uh, specifically. So, and I also think that that most people would agree that there's a need to better understand the ingredients, the relevant ingredients of an intervention that targets working memory skills. So for example, how long should you train what exactly should you train, uh, what cognitive, exact cognitive processes should it target, and also the person characteristics and, and motivations that also interact with the, the training outcome. So going back to kind of the, the question that we um, touched on earlier, so the simple question of whether or not brain training or working memory training or brain training works um, it is really largely the wrong question to ask. So uh, if I give you an analogy, if you would simply ask, well, do drugs work? Um, people will be puzzled too and say, well, of course it would depend on what you're trying to treat and whom you you want to treat. Um, and that's where precision medicine comes into play. 
And I think we're at a very similar point in time with uh, brain training as well. Um, uh, and, and given the fact that brain training is still in its relative infancy, even though very early attempts go back 100 years or so, <laughs> but the scientific journey in trying to, to get at this has really only begun and we have a long way to go, which then makes this endeavor to understand for whom and why brain training works it is really interesting and exciting to me. I also think what's interesting with, you know, talking to the public and everything in these spaces around the brain is that the brain is incredibly plastic across our lifespan. And us as neuroscientists did a very poor job uh, up until about 2000s, where we said the brain was fixed after the age of 25. So there's still that. Right. And you'll still people hear people saying, well, you're 60 now, you're 70 now, you're 80 now. But there's so much evidence of people training their brain up until 110 that are incredibly right. sharp, even sharper than some 18-year-olds, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're engaged in doing new things and learning new things across their whole lifespan. I think that's some of the evidence that's coming out around the century, you know, the people living past 100 healthy and strong, for example. And I think mm -hmm. when people think of memory training, they think that that's don't worry about it. They don't see it as building muscle for the brain mm -hmm. that then passes on to resisting overeating or helping you to want to make yourself exercise. They don't see all of the additional, it's not just training your memory. It's training mm -hmm. physical connections in your brain that are strengthening lots of circuits in your brain, not just that one section. Exactly. And and another thing that I want to emphasize there, right? So brain training is maybe one avenue, right? But there's other avenues too that can foster these connections and, and maintain brain plasticity as we age. So uh, a, a good example is um, what we often see when, when people retire from intellectually engaging jobs and then they don't really know what to do with their lives and in the extreme example they're sitting maybe at home and, and watching tv um and, and then that often goes then hand in hand with a very sharp decline in yes. in cognitive functioning whereas where other people who stay engaged and and go out and maybe take courses at uh, old age, like uh, third age uh, universities. I don't know how they're called in Australia, or they are um, doing book clubs or they're uh, uh, the playing music with their friends or traveling the world to really keep intellectually engaged. So that, that's really a, a, um, an additional, more large scale uh, way how you can kind of foster and maintain uh, brain plasticity. Yes. So, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. The Blue Zones work have shown this a lot uh, about mm -hmm. the, the where people are living well and right. free of chronic diseases uh, have shown that it's these things around moving your body a lot, being engaged mm -hmm. in new activities, eating food from the garden and being very right. socially connected. And so you can do brain training, but it's not enough just to sit on a computer and do brain training and not then be exactly. engaged socially. This is the thing you've got to transfer the gains you're making into the real life, right? Because you need your body moving. Mm -hmm. So the brain, the body stay yes. connected. It's mm -hmm. a holistic thing. We're not just saying this is enough. We're just saying this is an aspect of something that allows you to see that you can expand the power of your brain. Professor Dwarka is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at Wayne State University School of Medicine. He's the co-director of the Brain Imaging Research division 
So we're very lucky that he's with us today. His research focuses on many aspects of psychiatry and neuroscience, and I'll put a link to all his work and papers in the link, link to the podcast. But where he's become really well-known and famous is for his work on imaging Wim Hof's brain. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, and we're going to touch on many, many subjects. He's a very fascinating um, man and the research he's doing is it, it covers many many different areas so thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your time well thank you for the very kind introduction and thank you for finding our work interesting as i said to you if you're an academic to have somebody find your work interesting is kind of the biggest praise that you can ever receive thermoregulation you're talking about what we fundamentally think of as um, when we teach it to students is like the autonomic nervous system. It's that right. like, it's how we regulate our temperature. And mostly we think that we have no control over that, don't we? That's correct. And in fact, we live through our lives feeling cold or feeling too hot and just kind of not thinking we can do anything about it. So when he was when you were talking about um, the median and dorsal raphe, you're talking about this area in the brainstem that is well known to regulate our body temperature, aren't you? And, and you're talking about serotonin neurons, which are, the, which are, they're the things that make us feel good That's or great. bad. These are, if you think of how we sort of heuristically categorize the brain, right? We think of the cortex and the neocortex. And that's, those are the kinds of things like the fold, the gray matter as Ergur Poirot calls it, right? The folds in your brain that make you you, that make you think, that are most likely at the seat of what makes you feel like an individual or conscious. But then there are lots of these deep nuclei in the brain that are primitive structures that we kind of accept as being at the seat of the autonomous system that we have no conscious control over. And this is kind of how we think of the brain. You have the conscious or the willful part and then you have the autonomous or the subconscious part. And so, like, I love how you got into this research that looking at temperature regulation through hot flashes, I bet you didn't expect that. Absolutely not. And it's, I think it's the advantage of, I think nonlinear career trajectories, if you're lucky enough that they pay off, if you're unlucky, then they don't. But, and so it allows you to, do many different things that are of interest. And they, it, it frees you from actually having to chase one specific thing or to study one specific thing. So who would ever guess that hot flashes and Wim Hof would be would come together? So yeah, when I you I don't know if I told Wim this story, but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of those are that, two journey posts in this path. Absolutely. Well, you wouldn't be able to have imaged his brain without doing this research because what I, what, so that hot flash research. Um, um, so this leads us to, um, because we're, we're giving the audience this understanding because this is why you are the person that um, got to image Wim Hof because you were set up so well for doing this, weren't you? That's right. That's right. So we had already, we had apparatus. We had a, uh, I could put it that way. We had a program in place to study human thermal regulatory mechanisms using functional MRI and PET. And then around 2016 or so is when we had a student or a colleague tell us about Wim Hof. And I have to confess, I had not 
known of Wim Hof at that time. Nor had uh, many others. <laughs> evidently, yes. And it, so we actually were, I also have to confess that we did not initially have that much of an interest in the method. For us, or at least for me, Wim became a specimen who fit, it sounds crude to put it this way, but he became a kind of a unique specimen who has demonstrable defense against cold. And so there clearly are some tonic changes that have happened in his brain, which we assumed to be the case. And it would have, for us, it was going to be an enormously interesting enterprise to subject him to this cold stressor that we use in novices <clears throat> and individuals and try and understand how his brain responds. And so that became the original motivation that yep, had us reach out to him. He was very receptive and he flew over here from Amsterdam in early 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. And he spent two or three days where we did experiments using functional MRI, PET imaging and so on. And I think that's the study that you're well aware of, the brain over body yeah. stuff. So you, you, you and um, the, I mean, this was a, this was a game changer in some sense. I mean, it's only N equals one. That was his brain. Um, mm -hmm. And but it was published in NeuroImage. And I guess the biggest, I think, what, was, what would you say was the original aha or shocking moment for you as you looked at the data compared to people that are not training like he has over a long period of time? So I would say, interestingly enough, the most remarkable set of data in that is not so much the neuroimaging data, it's the skin temperature data. Yes. So if, if you are subjected to a whole body cooling stimulus, it would, I think you would agree, it would be unthinkable that your skin temperature would not change with the stimulus. And what we found in his case is when he was imaged uh, a short period after he had completed his entire method of uh, breathing, of uh, meditation, we found his skin temperature was extremely resistant to the actual stimulus. That is, it's, it was essentially invariant. And this is a real measure. It's not like a neuroimaging measure. So neuroimaging signals are analyzed, they are processed and so, so on. Skin temperature measures are not processed. It is the measure that comes off the probe. And so we found this to be an extremely striking finding. And that's, that had nothing to do with neuroimaging per se. And I think that data is in the paper. But the other thing that was very, fun, very, very striking was his ability, for lack of a better word, ability to activate deep brain structures in the midbrain, like the periaqueductal ray, that to our knowledge had been most closely associated with the descending modulation of pain in physiological studies. And the fact that in the aftermath of his method, he was able to engage in a phasic increase in activity in this region uh, compared to like a 20 odd number of uh, healthy controls, much younger healthy controls who didn't practice the method. And we found this finding to be extremely interesting. And so if you look at that paper, we also have the actual uh, fMRI time series data that show exactly what we are talking about, that what are the regions where we... And so, um, you know, that's really, those deep brain structures is something what people would call subconscious. 
you call them autonomous, meaning exactly. we're kind of teaching in textbooks the autonomic nervous system and things like that. So, and and this work has been replicated now, I think, as well, hasn't it? And you've come out with new paper as well since That's that right. original paper mm-hmm. looking at demo regulation. So That's I think right. what you're starting to see is that we have some conscious control over some of these systems that we thought we didn't. I think that we have, whether you want to call it conscious, whether you want to call it willful, uh, whatever semantics you want to use, I think it's unquestionable that our traditional ideas of this divide between the conscious and the autonomous, uh, those are not tenable anymore in the way in which they are advocated for. Uh, And in many ways to me, I never found that division all that compelling because as you and I have talked before, there there is a tradition of, you know, from different cultures where people may not know exactly why something works, but they know that some things work. And many of these techniques, like what Wim has used, their antecedents lie in sort of thousands of years of informal experimentation that individuals in different cultures have done. That was was a long answer. No, but yeah, so I think this brings us to the point around, I mean, so many people suffering, um, in some sense, unnecessarily related to our evolutionary brain structures. Mm-hmm. And so what you're describing there, and this is just like us having a conversation, and as you said, we're still working it all out, but what, what that says to me is that these very old systems that are very important for regulating our temperature and keeping us safe from all sorts of predatory mm-hmm. threats and cold exposure being one of them, um, uh, they become very automatic meaning they're, they're old. And so so to shift them takes a lot of effort is what you're kind of saying in some sense. Exactly. And we don't, we tend to live our lives trying to be comfortable. Yeah. So, uh, so just to summarize where we got to is that um, exposing ourselves to a cold shower in the morning. Um, and I do that. I never used to, used to hate the cold. Um, but as I did Wim Hof method, just to, to test it out for myself, and, and I was totally surprised to learn how my body adapted down to being able to be with ice and jumping cold lakes. Like I seriously was the person that had the hottest shower, would never go into anything that was cold. I really hated the cold and I could adapt myself uh, over through the practicing techniques that I learned. I was really surprised to learn just how much you can adapt I, I honestly was as a neuroscientist. And then I really started to think about all the things I'd been taught about these systems. It really mm-hmm. made me kind of almost shocked in a way. So I would say that what, what one gets taught in med school or in, you know, in neuroscience isn't wrong, but it's incomplete. And it is taught as being applicable to a wide variety of systems. Exactly. Yeah, because I know many people report having a cold shower completely stops their bad mood, for example. They just jump in the cold shower if they're having a bad time. They, they, they're shocked to learn that that might help or they feel more alert after having a cold shower before they're starting work. Yes. And, you know, there's lots of evidence for this. So that would be so fascinating to see how we can improve mental health of people suffering. 
it's got so much scientific support and evidence now. It'd be nice to see it integrated into um, practice. Yeah, we hope this is the first stage in sort of a long series of studies that we and others do that illuminate, you know, sort of how these different methods, what their scientific biological basis is. Because I think once you illuminate some element of the biology, it makes something seem much more credible and make it, it, it makes it much more real. See, without neuroimaging, we wouldn't be here. That's correct. I think that that remains one of the, it's a flawed, but nevertheless, one of the most valuable techniques that you have to make well, the kinds of advances that you need to see in biology. Well, you know, as I say to people, when you go to the gym and you're working out, you see your muscles getting stronger because you can see them. You're looking in the mirror. Unlike the brain, you can't see it. And that's Absolutely. been one of our greatest hindrances in terms of, ex, you know, accelerating. Perfect example. perfect example. I agree. And I'm joined today by Professor Randolph Nessie. Dr. Nessie is the founding president of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine and Public Health and a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, a fellow of the Association for Psychological Sciences and elected fellow of the AAAS. Today, we're going to discuss also his new book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. And this um, is insights from the founder of evolutionary psychiatry. How lucky are we to have him today to discuss this? Basically, he's asking evolutionary questions about why mental disorders exist and can make psychiatry more effective. And that's what we really want to get down to today. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great to be with you. So would you like to tell the audience a little bit about how you came into this and why you became a psychiatrist in the first place? Gosh, I told myself it was because I wanted to help people. And that was true because it was really satisfying work when I was seeing patients every day. It was just very satisfying. Um, but the other reason, which you don't talk about very much when you're in practice actively, is the number of people in my family who have had mental disorders and trying to figure out what's going on and, and why those disorders are there. Um, by the time I finished medical school and started my psychiatry residency, um, I was thrilled to be able to be learning neuroscience and psychodynamics and learning theory and, and pharmacology and you, you name it. It was a wonderful broad education I got. But a few years into my faculty position, I found myself very frustrated. My friends were either becoming psychoanalysts or behavior therapists or doctors who prescribed drugs or cognitive behavioral therapists. And, and I kept wanting to find some way of pulling it all together, some framework that would allow me to to use all of the science that was there. Plus, I was kind of frustrated because my own research on neuroendocrine responses showed that the body didn't necessarily respond consistently to something like intense fear. Everybody was different. And so I went wandering over to the Museum of Natural History where I was wonderfully welcomed by a group of biologists who explained to me that I really was only using half of biology. Um, I was using the half of biology that studies how things work and I never even thought it was okay to ask, why are things the way they are? Why do emotions exist, you know? Um, so back in 1984, I wrote an article about how evolution might help to provide a better foundation for psychiatry. Um, and shortly thereafter, I realized that nobody was gonna pay any attention uh, to evolutionary psychiatry unless it was really grounded in medicine. Plus, um, I really had to tackle the question about why diseases exist in general. 
uh, before I could make much progress on trying to understand why mental disorders are so common. And that led to the collaboration with George Williams and wrote an article in a book. And turns out a lot of people are very interested now in asking this whole new set of questions about why isn't the body better? Why didn't natural selection make our minds much more robust and less vulnerable? And it's been a wonderful preoccupation. It's coming along very well. So in this aha moment, did you find that you were having an aha moment when you made that walk across? And as someone that's actually on the front line at that point in your life, can you explain that time? Because I think this is a really important um, conversation because there's a lot of people out there that have this too, but they're being kind of told that if they have it or their family have it, then they're stuck with it for the rest of their life. So I'm, I'm just curious to know what, as a psychiatrist at that point, how you felt and what you all of a sudden wanted to write that book about. So, so I, I wish it was an aha moment, but actually it was mostly a moment of deep, deep embarrassment uh, because I started explaining to these biologists my theory about aging that I'd come up with as an undergraduate. I told them that I thought maybe aging existed because it's good for the species. Because if the species turns over regularly because everybody gets old and some people die every year, the species can evolve faster. That's kind of a nice, interesting idea, don't you think? Yes, I do. But it's completely wrong. It's so wrong uh, that everybody in the room kind of looked at each other as if I'd made a bad noise or sound or something. And, and a few, few of them started laughing. And, and one of them said very kindly, you don't know anything about biology, do you? And it was true. I mean, here I'd studied all through medical school, you know, done good research, and I had never, ever learned how natural selection actually worked. In fact, I thought that just providing an explanation of things based on mechanisms to do was understand why didn't natural selection make our bodies and minds more robust? Why do we have an appendix? Why do we have wisdom teeth? Why do we have back pain? Why do we have hemorrhoids? Why do we, and, what, and, and why do we have depression and anxiety and obsessions and all the rest? It's a whole new class of questions. And so what shifted in your mind from your original thinking about aging and, that, and to why we have these things, the hangovers, aren't out, they? <laughs> my, my new biologist friends sent me to the library and they said, you haven't read George Williams, 1957. And George Williams, 1957 paper was a seminal paper for evolutionary biology. Uh, he pointed out that, you know, traits, genes that cause aging could nonetheless be selected for if they gave benefits in youth when selection is stronger. And I thought, oh my gosh, if aging has an evolutionary explanation, what about all of these disorders I'm dealing with? What about schizophrenia? And after I began working with him, we began together making the most common, most serious mistake in evolutionary medicine. And that is trying to propose how diseases are useful. We, we seriously asked each other, so how does breast cancer give a benefit? How does schizophrenia give a benefit? And then one day we turned to each other and we said, that doesn't make any sense. These things don't give any benefits. We're trying to explain the wrong thing. Let's shift. Instead of trying to explain diseases, let's explain traits that make us vulnerable to diseases. That made all the difference. That, that was the key insight that led to the group of this, the growth of this particular um, aspect of evolutionary medicine. It's a whole new world of new questions. Do you want to explain, expand more on what 
those new questions have done for you and your work and, and found that, you know, the foundation of the curriculum developing in your new book as well? You know, the, the next thing that we did was try to figure out, so um, why aren't bodies better? I was taught in medical school that bodies aren't better because mutations happen. And now I'm calling that tacit creationism. And by that, I mean, talking about the body and viewing the body as if it's a machine designed by somebody. Um, but if you start thinking about how the body actually came to be, it's a very different beast. You know, the complexities of the brain in particular, um, the wiring of the brain, it's, it doesn't have circuits that are sensible, that are nice components. And again, as a neuroscientist, I'm sure you know, I mean, people talk about the function of the locus ceruleus or the function of serotonin or the function of the vagus nerve. Um, I've memorized all that stuff, but it turns out that a real evolutionary view recognizes that each of these things have many different functions and they're overlapping with each other. And it's, it's not just complicated, it's a different kind of complexity than the complexity of machines. And this brings us, I mean, one of my most recent papers is about Alzheimer's disease actually, and asking, so why are we also vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease? One answer, actually, I should go through the reasons why people are vulnerable to disease in general. Let's, let's, that, list yeah, let's start out. there. That'd be great. And the first obvious one is, hey, mutations do happen. You know, the, the codex, the genome can't be kept pure and it's constantly deteriorating and there's genetic drift. Those are all very real things. Furthermore, natural selection doesn't always find the best possible available solution. So those are, those are big things. Uh, but then another big one is that our bodies are in environments very different from the environments that we evolved in. And this is why when we go to the grocery store, we're liable to buy pizza and ice cream instead of vegetables and, and high fiber foods. Um, and as a result, there are huge epidemics of obesity and, and other diseases that result from eating foods to say nothing of, we all tell ourselves we should exercise a couple of hours every day. Yeah. Not many of us do it. And that's because we have even, we've been evolved to conserve calories, you know, not, not to uh, spend extra calories doing effortful kinds of things. Then there are specific diseases. I just heard a talk yesterday from the AAAS, a wonderful um, discussion of the best scientists in the world talking about autoimmune diseases. And they had the most amazing, wonderful science about specific genetic abnormalities that explained a disease in 300 people worldwide, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, the mechanisms are being figured out for a lot of these diseases, but they didn't mention anything about the fact that many of these autoimmune diseases like type one diabetes, and especially certain bowel inflammatory bowel disease and asthma, I mean, they're four to 10 times more common than they were just 40 or 50 years ago. Why is that? So we really must be asking this new question, not just how things work. We need to be asking questions about why the body is not better. And one big reason is that we're not living in the same environment we used to live in. Yet another explanation is that the whole system was not shaped to make us healthy. That's so disturbing, I think. The whole system was shaped to maximize gene transmission. And if you're a psychiatrist, very quickly you realize the proportion of problems that come from sex. And guess what? All those sexual impulses are swirling and all kinds, those aren't for us. Uh, those are to try to get us to do things that will transmit our genes. And it's no wonder that they cause so many problems. So those are a quick few.
So fascinating. So I'd, I'd like to just dig down on one of these is fear and what you've learned about that. And it's right. so as you, as you mentioned in that lovely introduction, Selena, I, I spent most of my career treating patients with anxiety disorders. And, and I began with psychoanalytic kinds of treatment and I pr pr continued to uh, try to figure out ways of using cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, medications turned out to be very useful as well. And it was a marvelous, useful career because so many people have problems that can be helped dramatically uh, with anxiety. But it wasn't until I'd been doing it for about 10 years that I finally recognized that I really should be asking, why does anxiety exist at all? And why are people so sensitive? And one of the things that came up uh, was recognizing something called the smoke detector principle. Uh, I kept asking myself, why didn't natural selection do a better job of giving us anxiety only when we need it? And it took many years of thinking about it, but I finally figured out that signal detection theory offers the answer. And if you have a smoke detector in your house, how sensitive do you want it to be? Do you want it to go off only when the smoke detector is burning and the whole room is full of smoke? No, you want it to go off when there's any hint of a fire. And this means it's going to go off quite often when you burn your toast. So false alarms are necessary and normal and essential to a normal functioning system. And this turns out to be the reason why a lot of us have too much anxiety. Anxiety is cheap compared with not having enough anxiety in the face of serious danger. This turned out to be very useful to my patients. And previously I explained to them, you know, you have a mental disorder, it's a brain disorder, but no, doesn't mean your brain is broken. We're gonna fix it. And, and they, they didn't get it, you know? But once I started saying, anxiety is a useful response to protect you from danger. And just like your smoke detector in your house, it goes off a whole lot of times, normally when it's useless. And a lot of patients said, oh, that makes sense. And it was just enormously helpful. And instead of th thinking of themselves as defective persons, you know, they started thinking of themselves who you know, had disadvantages, but also advantages from having more anxiety than other people. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, and that's exactly why I switched into neuroplasticity and this understanding away from just trying to map down to the individual neuron. That's exactly where the switch took place for me as well around 2008, 2009, um, after, after studying and developing medicines for 20 years at that point. <laughs> um, so I switched and that's why I'm interviewing people like yourself and others around the concepts of this idea of neuroplasticity. The brain can be changed with practice and effort that even though we may still have all these mutations and and things from natural selection we have the ability to change the brain that's the beauty of the brain psychotherapy changes the brain i mean that's a fundamental principle a lot of people don't quite grasp yes and it takes effort and practice though doesn't it it's not enough just to have it a does take effort and i spent many years helping people to understand cognitively the origins of their anxiety and early memories and that kind of thing. It was very interesting, but it didn't help them. Yes. On that subject again, where you, you were saying how interesting it was that um, patients, once you start to talk to them about uh, their brain in terms of the alarm systems going off, and sometimes they're going off just from an evolutionary perspective. Can we talk about that? That is so fascinating. And I know people would be really interested in your um, understanding as a clinician in these spaces. 
Right, for the smoke detector principle, but I'm going to go through that again for a second because I'm not sure uh, if, if that got through. Um, I was just appalled by how many people had anxiety. It were way, way more than we could possibly treat. And I asked myself, so who designed this thing? Because, of course, it wasn't just you know a few patients. We're all plagued by anxiety. In fact, here's a People are desperate to find some way of being less anxious. And I don't have a magic cure. Um, everybody else seems to have a magic cure. Um, but what I do have is an explanation for why anxiety exists and why so many of us feel so much more anxiety than seems to be useful. And again, a part of the explanation is the smoke detector principle. Anxiety is cheap. And not having enough anxiety when you're in a life-threatening situation is desperately, I mean, that's terrible. And so false alarms are really normal. But the other insight I finally came to, I was also very interested all through about why it is that humans are so nice. Um, yeah, some humans are mean, but basically we, most of us feel guilt. We care a lot about what other people think about us. We try to do the right thing. And this is a deep evolutionary mystery. Uh, people used to think it was you know, for the good of the group. That doesn't work evolutionarily. Um, it probably has a lot to do with culture, because once you get culture going, it becomes a strong selection force. Uh, but finally, I'm working on work done by Mary Jane West Eberhard on something called social selection. I realized that you know people are competing to be preferred as partners. Absolutely. Not just as mates, not just as mates, but as work partners and, and friends and group partners, when we try to hire somebody for our department or a corporation, you know, we want somebody who's honest and nice and hardworking and loyal, you know, it, it, and the people who act that way get big advantages compared to the people who say I'm selfish, you know, and, and that, that just doesn't go anyplace. So this has been going on for you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And I think it's a very strong selection force that makes us, you know, very nice and plagued by guilt and especially plagued by social anxiety. I mean, most of us try to plan ahead of time what we're going to say, even once, even to the grocery store clerk. You know, we're a little bit nervous about every time we open our mouth, are we going to blow it? Um, and some of my patients are so frightened of that, they don't leave their houses or they get a job as a night watchman where they never have to talk to anybody. Right. It's really desperately a severe disorder, bad social anxiety disorders. But I think there's a good reason why we all have way more social anxiety than we think is useful. And that's because what people think about us is very, very important. But as I've gotten older and watched people and learned more, I realized that, you know, yeah, it might get you more accomplishments, um, but there's also a price, price to be paid um, if you become an aggressive person striving for status. In fact, I think there's another deep contradiction here that you know, the social resources we get, one big social resource we strive for is status and being a big shot and having people look up to us and having social power. But the other social resource we strive for is friends and being a member of a group and having other people appreciate us. And those two often conflict with each other because often within your group, you know, you're competing with other people who are kind of your friends. And this leads to a lot of the complexities of social life and why we lie awake night thinking about things. Um, and a lot of the things people talk about in therapy because social life is actually very complicated. Right. So in, in your experience um, in the field with people as well as in your own lab, it sounds to me like this is one of the biggest issues around anxiety. 
It is. It is. And, you know, we can treat social anxiety very effectively. But first you have, I mean, for all anxiety, the central principle is that doing what you fear will make you fear it less. And you can't just run into a grocery store with a panic attack and then run back out again. You have to go into the grocery store, have your panic attack and stay there until it gets better. And this has become that because natural selection has shaped a mechanism that adjusts the responsiveness of that system to the dangers of the circumstance. And this is another reason why anxiety disorders are common. It's because a positive feedback process gets set off often where people are afraid of their symptoms of fear. So their heart starts pounding and think, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. And that fear causes more adrenaline, causes more high pounding heart rate and, and all the rest. And worse, people run out of the grocery store when they have a panic attack and their inner mind says, says to them, whoa, you just escaped big danger. Good thing you got out of there. Um, so it's, it's a very hard thing to do as a therapist to help people recognize that you know, what they need to do is go into that situation that's causing them such unbearable fear and just stay there, which is completely unnatural. But it's tapping into a basic evolved mechanism that, that resets the anxiety threshold response, depending on how dangerous the environment is. But again, some poor people who have panic attacks several times a day, I mean, the panic attacks themselves make the environment seem dangerous. And so again, this positive feedback process gets set off. Here's another way that evolutionary thinking has been very useful to me. Um, antidepressants, as you may or may not know, are very effective in stopping panic attacks. It takes a few weeks often, but it pretty reliably will stop the panic attacks. And my patients would always ask me, is this just covering over my symptoms? And they would be very reluctant to take a drug that was covering over symptoms. And I used to say, no, 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 don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Finally, I was able to explain to them though, with an evolutionary understanding, I was able to say, well, actually there's a mechanism in your brain that will downregulate the sensitivity of the anxiety system once you stop having attacks for a few months. And so it's not as if you're just covering things over, you're actually normalizing your experience of the world to make it more realistic. And that was so helpful for patients to have an accurate view of how these drugs. And um, if with practice, like if, like in your experience now, and do you think we could train this mechanism by having a, like, do you understand it evolutionarily? You're trying to start a curriculum around this in medicine. So don't you think there's a way that we can teach this so that we can teach people this idea so that we don't keep doing the same thing forever in terms of evolution? Like we do have a human understanding of this in a way. That, that's a lot of the reason why I wrote the book for the general public, as well as for, for clinicians and researchers, um, is because I've been so thrilled to get notes from people saying, oh, Dr. Nessie, I read your book and it, it just changed my view of what my problems are in an enormously helpful way. I mean, it's again, not a self-help book. It's a science book, but it's a science that's been missing uh, from understanding these disorders. Exactly. And I think that's what this podcast is about too. And, and this, I, this concepts too of moving away from always about the bad, about illness and not about the good, which is our resilience and our evolutionary strength to get to where we are now. Um, William Hines, who's a coordinator and head of new approaches for economic challenges at the OECD. And 
it's really exciting because he's been working with a, another Australian who's living in San Francisco also, and they've been writing a lot of articles around the Brain Health Capital Grand Strategy. And as you know from the podcast, this is an interest of mine and, and I can see the future being driven in terms of both economics and other places through brain health. So thank you, William, for joining us. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about your background, um, just to give them an idea of your experience and maybe how you got to this level of thinking in terms of economic policy? Uh, new ideas, and that's what we're about in the OECD, new approaches to economic challenges, um, to go beyond just learning more and more and becoming more specialized about economics, but to try and connect that to other disciplines, to stay flexible, agile, uh, to try to understand more about science. Uh, and so this I've tried to optimize by essentially continuing to explore, read, and stay agile rather than uh, double down and specialize. And again, I think this is probably a change and a useful change when we think about brain health as opposed to traditional ways of training, where we really did put an emphasis on specialization. You, know, you learn more and more about less and less. And um, I think I'm trying to you know, learn broadly about things and how things work and understand them. And so that's how I try to optimize my brain health. I noticed in one of your papers, your co-author is Sandra Chapman in Dallas. Yep. And um, I work in similar spaces where you can actually get an index of your brain health, cognitive, cognitive capacities. Have you been able to access her assessment tools to get a baseline understanding and see what it's all about? I haven't, but, uh, you know, I should do this. But uh, we've, we've had a couple of times uh, Admiral Bill McRaven who's uh -huh. uh, a major advocate of the work that uh, Sandy is doing. And um, he, his point of view, I think, is one that I sympathize with a lot, that uh, when he was in the military, he'd have periodically a physical exam. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd ask all these questions about, you know, your heart and your organs and uh, your general level of fitness. They never ask any questions about the brain. Uh, and that would seem to be a pretty important aspect of uh, your overall health and well-being. And uh, so I think that's, that's changing. Maybe tools like this can be useful to at least start the discussion about how we could uh, have some sort of baseline and how we could start to integrate questions into regular medicals and, and health examinations so that um, we can detect problems early and we can see how people are doing their broad well-being rather than just uh, whether the mechanical systems are, are functioning correctly, um, we, we need a much more systemic approach, which would integrate the brain. Yeah, I found his, uh, I, I listened to his video on that uh, uh, webinar that you were having. And I found mm -hmm. it really interesting that how he came into it, like we all do through our own personal experiences or family history, and how, how his whole family benefited from doing brain health training starting with the baseline brain health index and then watching a change over six months, which really changed his fundamental acceptance of this concept that you could promote brain health. I thought that was really fascinating how he talked about that. So, yeah, that made me think that you're probably doing something similar, writing about it. Um, and this is something that I think many people um, listening to this podcast can 
that that's what they're listening for is to find out those strategies to understand that this these tools and are available to people now it's not like a black box like we used to think it was anymore well i've we, through these discussions with bill mcraven and sandy we've encouraged our member countries to um, visit the website and uh, i had feedback from some ambassadors that they tried that and they found it very useful so um I think it is essentially part of this whole brain capital discussion is getting these things more widely known in different policy communities. Absolutely. Because um, we might not think that these things are relevant, but of course they're relevant to almost everything that we do in policy. So um, yeah, we're, we're trying to raise awareness, but going back to your point about questions and uncertainties about whether these things work, um, I think it's easy to be skeptical and um, to say, well, this looks like, you know, I, I, I read the, I do the crossword every day, so I'm covered on this. I don't need to uh, do these types of exercise, but it, it is about putting it within a system and it'll work for some people and probably for others, it'll be a little less uh, effective. But um, is this something that, again, going back to one of your early points, is this something we want to pursue at a societal level, that this could become a regular part of people's health routine, just as they exercise every day, or maybe every week, um, they should be doing these type of brain health uh, activities as well. And I think that would move us in the direction of putting brain health more on the agenda, more central to the part of the health and well-being agenda. Yeah. And I think the thing that I've discovered is that by using the word brain health, which I keep coming back to, it's very important because it allows people to talk about their brain in a healthy way, as you said. Um, whereas before we kept not talking about it, which meant that it got no focus or attention because people thought you were either crazy or it would affect your career. Um, and I did hear one of these questions on one of your podcasts raised about the negative side effects of being able to assess people's brain health and using them in workplaces. Um, I can also see there's good and bad sides. People can use things against people. So I, I'm sure you're thinking through all of that as well. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And surprisingly, the ethical dimensions of this were also raised by some of our colleagues that... Um, you're putting an emphasis on uh, highly skilled people and uh, people who use the brain, but the type of skills we need in economy are, are varied and some are physical. And I just thought it was curious because as you said, we want to optimize people's brain performance because no matter what job you do, you should be doing that. And um, again, it's kind of this mechanistic linear way of thinking about inputs uh, and and how we generate outputs and this is it's a central issue that we need to look at much more broadly and um, optimizing health brain health is an issue that affects everybody it's not just high skilled workers uh, and it's not just entrepreneurs that are creative and innovative everybody for their well-being should be thinking about their brain so um we're not there yet. Uh, and we've talked a lot about well-being in the OECD, but again, it's disconnected from uh, the, the brain health issues. Well, I think we have one uh, aspect of well-being, which is related to mental health. And so we look at mental health uh, across different OECD countries, but these pale in consideration to things like social connection, environment, uh, 
um, income, uh, housing even is a, an aspect of well-being. We think of all these, but the brain is probably a cross-cutting issue that will affect things. And just to take one example of that, we've uh, written a few papers about the environment and the brain. And um, you know, when we think about pollutants, plastics, uh, and a whole range of neurotoxins, the, the environment, again, it's not something that is separate from discussion of the brain. It, it, the brain affects the environment because you know, we, we talked about whether the, the brain was accelerating the climate crisis and looked at uh, science denialism and uh, these sort of issues and how we process information. We're more susceptible to um, fake news and things like that. But also the, the changing climate and environmental issues affect the brain and how it works. So uh, I keep repeating myself, but it's uh, an important point. Can't separate out these issues and just have a box where the brain issues are dealt with because they, they're cross-cutting and they affect on almost every economic and social aspect of what we do. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 100, all about the accidental futurists and what they've learned about brain health and fitness. And we thank them for helping us put brain health and fitness revolution in motion. The science is rapidly advancing. And like all science, what we know now may be different next week and the following month. And that's why having an open mind is really important. We have new ways and platforms of bringing this understanding to you. So please stay tuned as we keep interviewing um, new people, watching out for the new science as it's evolving. In the, in the coming weeks, we will send you and watch out for episodes of compilations of the other three themes. Look out for Food and Mood in episode 102, Neuroscience of Learning in episode 104, and People's Amazing Stories of Brain Health and Fitness in episode 106. Stay tuned because we are all thriving minds and we believe everyone deserves an opportunity to be happy, healthy and strong.